Welcome to our new podcast series, Encircled in the Arms of His Love, The Book of Mormon and the Temple. I'm Sam Bracken, your host, and our teacher is Dr. Breck England. This year, as members of the church study the Book of Mormon together, we want to invite you to look at the Book of Mormon through the lens of the temple. We hope that our podcast series this year will help you connect the temple to the book and vice versa. Everything in the Book of Mormon and the temple guides us toward what I call the divine embrace, which means to be enfolded in our Savior's arms as we enter his presence. And that's why we call this episode the divine embrace. Today, we are going to focus on the meaning of that embrace. A few days before his death, Lehi gave this farewell sermon to his children. He told them something that I think is central to understanding the Book of Mormon and the temple and the whole doctrine of the gospel and the atonement of Christ. Could you read for us this passage, 2 Nephi 1, 15? The Lord hath redeemed my soul from hell. I have beheld his glory, and I am encircled about eternally in the arms of his love. I want to unpack that statement because it is so important. Lehi says, quote, The Lord hath redeemed my soul from hell, unquote. Well, in the Old Testament, there's this repeated frightening language about being trapped in hell. It's, uh, it's usually expressed in the form of chains or cords holding us down in hell, in the grave. Uh, the Hebrew word is sheol, which was a word for a pit. Job says in um, 33.28, he says that the Lord has redeemed his soul from the pit, the shachat or the sheol. Lehi says that the Lord has redeemed him from the pit that signifies physical and spiritual death. And he pleads with his sons to pull off their chains and get out of the pit. Let's read 2 Nephi 1.13. Yeah, this is one of my favorite scriptures. In, in my house, I have a giant painting as you come in, and it and it's, the scripture was used to, as some of the inspiration for that painting. Oh, that you would awake, awake from a deep sleep, yea, even from the sleep of hell, and shake off the awful chains by which ye are bound, which are the chains which bind the children of men, that they are carried away captive down to the eternal gulf of misery and woe. So Lehi sees his two sons, Laman and Lemuel, are asleep, as, as if they were asleep, right? Bound in chains in an eternal gulf of misery. And they're in this pit because the devil, quote, leadeth them by the neck with a flaxen cord until he bindeth them with his strong cords forever. And that's in Second Nephi 26, verse 22. Now what's scary is that without a Redeemer, we would all end up in that situation, encircled with chains or strong cords in the pit. King David says in his Psalm um, 119, he says, um, quote, the cords of the wicked have encircled me, unquote. That's verse 61. And the prophet Samuel says, quote, when the waves of death encompassed me, the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows, or cords, is the original word, the cords of hell compassed me about, unquote. That's, uh, that's in Second Samuel 22, 
verses 5 and 6. And it sounds like a prophecy of Nephi's situation, doesn't it? On the boat, when he was bound with strong cords and compassed by the waves of death. But Nephi was redeemed from that situation, which was a literal binding. And Lehi was uh, redeemed um, spiritually, right? So how does this redeeming come about? How are we redeemed? Could you read part of um, 2 Nephi 1.15? And I have beheld his glory, and I am encircled about eternally in the arms of his love. It's powerful. This is a, a brief and mysterious sentence. Yeah. What does he mean when he says, quote, I have beheld his glory? Well, we know from First Nephi that Lehi had a vision of, quote, great and marvelous things, unquote, that he could not talk about. And when he says, quote, I am encircled about eternally in the arms of his love, unquote, we have to assume that something happened to him to make him think that he was in the Lord's embrace. Now, I believe that Lehi has received his endowment. To behold the glory of the Lord is to receive the endowment. How do I know that? In the Gospel of John 17, 24, Jesus promises that his disciples will behold the glory of the Lord. Now, we know, as Latter-day Saints, what the glory of the Lord is. Don't we? We do. This is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Right. So to behold the glory of the Lord is not just to see blinding brightness, but it's to witness the bringing to pass of the eternal life of man. That is to see the Lord's whole plan laid out in front of us. And that is what happens, exactly what happens in the temple endowment. Right? Right. So when we receive the endowment, we behold the glory of the Lord, which is the bringing to pass of our immortality and eternal life. Mm. Also, Lehi says that he has been, quote, encircled in the arms of his love, unquote. Now, in other words, he's been embraced by the Lord. And that also happens in the temple, doesn't it? Totally does. Uh, John says in chapter 1 of his gospel, he says, quote, We beheld his glory, and of his fullness have we all received, even immortality and eternal life, unquote. So, just as the disciples received their endowment promises, so did Lehi. He beheld the unfolding of the Father's glory, that is, the plan of salvation, and he was embraced by the Lord. Now, we could assume that he meant this embrace to be um, figurative, because having the Lord's arms wrapped around you is a fairly common figure of speech in the, um, in the Old Testament. For example, Moses says of the house of Israel, quote, he found him, that is the house of Israel, in a wasteland, a howling wilderness, and encircled him, and instructed him, and kept him, now we're still talking about the house of Israel, right? And kept him as the apple of his eye. That's the way um, the new King James Version has Deuteronomy 32.10. An interesting expression, the apple of his eye. Who, who is the apple of your eye? 
Sam. My wife, my children, my grandchildren. <laughs> yes. This week, I've, I was talking to a dear friend of mine who made some serious mistakes in his life. Struggle with addiction and other things. He was brought to tears about the notion of being brought before Christ in Judgment Day. Who wouldn't be? Exactly. And he said to me, all I can imagine is, is throwing myself at his feet and begging for forgiveness. And I said, you know, we're all, we're all sinners. We, we all make mistakes. And I said, but can I add to that vision a bit? What if, after you did that, he encircled you in his loving arms? Mm. And he wept because the Spirit bore witness to him of a loving, eternal Savior. And if he stays on the path, he'll receive all that Father has. It was a cool little story. What you just said is the story. Because uh, the only people that I think won't be embraced by the Savior are the ones who don't want to be. Okay. That's true. Right? Yeah. You say, stand back, I'm not interested. And there right. are such people. Good point. I'm, I'm, I happen not to be one of them. Okay. <laughs> Me neither. So, very interesting to learn that we individually are the apple of his eye. Uh, it's a really ex interesting expression. It comes from the Hebrew Ishun Enav, which means the little man of the eye. Wow. <laughs> it, it was an apple. It refers to the tiny reflection of the person you're looking at in the pupil of your eye. It's the central image in your eye, wow. the focus of your eye, it clearly signifying how important that person is to you. So if you are the apple of God's eye, that is to say, the little person in his eye. Right. What does that mean for you? He's focused on me, that I matter to him. He sees you. He ma you matter to him. You're yeah. important to him. Right, right. But, but the ultimate reward for faithfulness, according to Lehi, is not just to be seen, but to be encircled, to be encircled about eternally in the arms of his love. As you said, your friend, weeps at the thought because it is so important to him, especially having the need to be redeemed, right? Right, right, right. Um, he doesn't deserve to be embraced. Well, neither do any of us. Right, correct. We none of us to do. To be embraced. Right, right, right. And, and Lehi has experienced this, and he, he knows what it means to be embraced by the Savior. He knows what it means to feel those loving arms around himself and to lay his head on that shoulder. Talk for a minute about how that feels. There's an element of, um, of humility and suffering that comes with this idea of being brought before God because of our, of our wretchedness. And I think in the Judeo-Christian practices of repentance and all these kind of structured processes of being forgiven of your sins. I think we get an element of our worthlessness. <laughs> I think that a lot of times the, the edge of that makes us feel like we're worthless. But when I think about being embraced by father and like my head on his shoulder weeping and embraced by his love, I get a sense of importance and that I matter and that I'm worthwhile. And it's, it does amazing things for my confidence in, in myself and that I'm a literal son of God. And that carries with it a certain power 
that really makes me feel good. And I don't know if I'm articulating this very well, but I think it's I think you're articulating it very well, and that's exactly how I feel too. I used to be a veil worker and I was always impressed by the difference in the way people approach the veil. Some of them are um, they just kind of rattle through it, you know. Others are weeping. And I've actually had them lay their head on my shoulder because I represent the father to right, them. And, right. and it's, uh, it's a remarkable um, difference. And, and that's what the temple is all about, right. is, is getting that hug. <laughs> okay. Right, right. Like, like Adam and Eve, we, we go through an ordeal of trial and instruction what I call getting kicked in the head over and over again. Yeah, <laughs> and, tribulation, right. Uh, yeah, and, and we have to demonstrate our faithfulness to our covenants, right? We have to pick ourselves up and keep going. But in the end, there's this climactic moment when the Lord meets you at the veil and says, well done, and he puts his arms around you, and that is the actual literal meaning of atonement, to be at one with the Savior. So we see in the Book of Mormon that there are two paths. Strangely enough, there are two atonements. One path leads to the pet, to be wrapped in chains and sealed to Satan. Wow. <laughs> How would you like to be in his embrace? Uh, no. Because I, I've, of, I've actually been in his embrace before in my childhood. I don't want to ever be in, in that position again. Ever. Yeah. Alma says, if he drags you down there, he says, he doth seal you his. How would it feel to be sealed to Satan? To, yeah. be, to, to be encircled by the chains of Satan and have him as your constant companion for eternity. It would be the worst possible outcome. But there is another path. Now that, that other path also leads through tribulation. Right? Thorns and thistles and so does, forth. But we take covenants it's the covenant path, and, and we demonstrate our faithfulness. We repent when we get off the path and get back on, and in the end, the Savior wraps his arms around us, and we are sealed to him. I don't know why, why anyone would not choose that kind of embrace over Satan's chains. Psalm 125, verse 2, tells us this. Quote, just as mountains encircle Jerusalem, so the Lord encircles his people from now to eternity, unquote. The Hebrew word for embrace is chabak, and the Greek word is proskinesis, which, interestingly enough, also carries the meaning of a kiss. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, the New Testament word for worship is proskinesis. So, when we go into the temple, the divine embrace is actually the truest and purest kind of worship. So if you want to know what true worship is, it happens in the temple. Lehi holds out this promise of being encircled eternally in the arms of his love and says to his sons, Awake, my sons. Put on the armor of righteousness and shake off the chains which ye are bound, and come forth out of obscurity, and arise from the dust. This is another scripture of which that painting is based yeah, yeah. on. So, yeah, Sam has a painting on his wall of uh, himself 
and his wife shaking off chains and coming forth out of the dust, and it's quite impressive. And that's in Second Nephi 1, 23, verse 23 and 24. To shake off the chains and rise from the dust is work we all have to do. There's one scholar who says that this passage is from an ancient coronation formula used in the Middle East. When kings were crowned, they were said to be, quote, taken from the dust, <laughs> or elevated from being nobodies to being kings. So to arise from the dust in those days meant to take your rightful place as a king or a queen. In 2 Nephi 2, going on, Lehi is talking to his son Jacob, and Jacob's an unusual man. Why do I say that? Well, let, let's read what Lehi says to Jacob. And now, Jacob, I speak unto you. Thou knowest the greatness of God, and he shall consecrate thine afflictions for thy gain. Wherefore, thy soul shall be blessed, and thou shalt dwell safely with thy brother Nephi, and thy days shall be spent in the service of thy God. Wherefore, I know that thou art redeemed, because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer. For thou hast beheld that in the fullness of time he hath cometh to bring salvation unto men, and thou hast beheld in thy youth his glory. So like we said before, to behold his glory is to receive the endowment. Mm. Now Lehi says that Jacob has been redeemed right. and has beheld his glory. In other words, he has seen the whole plan of God and the role of Jesus Christ in bringing salvation unto men. Also he says that Jacob will be spending his days in the service of God, which means he will be a priest and a temple worker, right? Right. Um, then Lehi reviews with Jacob what he, Jacob, learned in the endowment. Could you read chapter 2, verses 14 and 15? God hath created all things, both the heavens and the earth, and all things that in them are. And to bring about his eternal purposes in the end of man, after he hath created our first parents, and the beasts of the field, and the fowls of the air, and all things which are created, it must needs be that there was an opposition, even the forbidden fruit in opposition to the tree of life, the one being sweet, the other being bitter. Right, so Lehi reviews with Jacob the story of the creation and the Eden story about the two trees and the fallen angel who tempts Adam and Eve. And Lehi explains that the tree of knowledge is bitter and the tree of life is sweet. So in other words, he sees, he's reviewing with him everything he learned in, in the endowment, right? Mm -hmm. So why would he say, why would Lehi say that the, the tree of knowledge has bitter fruit? What comes to me is this idea of knowing that we are here in a time of tribulation, that bad things are going to happen to us, that there will be difficulty. The notion of that opposition can be bitter, and that's necessary to understand what sweet tastes like. To become fully aware, we need to know both sides of the story, I guess is the best way to say it. Right. If you have tasted bitterness, you know the difference between that and sweetness. You do, right? yeah. And I think in your life, and in mine, in your life, you've tasted the bitter. Isn't that true? It is, and it's also true that I've tasted sweet. And you know the difference. And that is the tree of knowledge. That's what the tree of knowledge provides you. 
right. the whole purpose of our earthly probation. As, as Eve says in Moses chapter 5, is to learn the difference between sweet and bitter, or between good and evil. The Lord says we are here in this celestial world to taste the bitter, that we may know how to prize the good. And that's in Moses chapter 6, 55. There seems to be no other way for us to do this. The covenant path is going to be full of thorns and thistles. We're going to have the bitter, right? right. Let's read what Lehi explains to Jacob. It must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. If not so, righteousness could not be brought to pass. Neither wickedness, neither holiness, nor misery. There could have been no creation of things, neither to act or to be acted upon. Wherefore, all things must have vanished away. We had a great discussion in our Come Follow Me uh, study as a family this week around this very thing. It's fascinating and wonderful the, the truth that is found in this statement. It's really logical as well. Just in that sentence, is, it, it's very deep stuff. Very deep stuff, yeah. <laughs> Essentially, Lehi is telling us that the existence of the whole universe depends on the principle of opposition. Yep, that's true. Like that's positive true. and negative charges that right. exist right down at the subatomic level. Right. I mean, without these contraries, right, nothing could exist. Right. So it seems to be woven right into the pattern of the of the universe and of this world that there must be opposition and there is no way around it on this point the prophet joseph smith made an interesting comment once one day he was writing about the contrasts between religions right and and their beliefs and he said this quote by proving contraries truth is made manifest what what do you think that means I think that means when you look at both sides of the story, the positive and the negative, what comes through that exercise, you find the real truth. Right. To, to prove something, no matter what it is, you have to test it. Right, right. right. In a trial, they bring witnesses, right? To, right. To prove what happened. So to prove something, you have to test it. You have to test it against its opposite. Right. We have to prove the contraries as Joseph Smith said. And that's the only way we can learn truth. That's why we're plunged into this world of tribulation, so we can be tested against opposition. Without opposition, there is no progress. Right. I learned this really, really practically as a young person. I was taught to be selfish, to steal what I wanted, to do what I wanted. Um, I was taught that doing drugs and alcohol and I mean at a very young age Mm. to be completely self-absorbed and I found that to be a miserable existence I also found that to be dark very dark and when I started learning that there were other ways to live to be kind to help people to serve people to love people to do good instead of bad it changed everything because the way i felt because of the way i thought and the way it just helped me become a better person because of the contrast it became really clear what path i would choose to follow and that was the path of light mm-hmm. right that's that's why i wanted you to talk about these right. things because i know that you have experienced really the depth of bitterness 
And um, I think many of our listeners may not have had the experience that you have uh, had with the bitter. And uh, that's, I mean, in a way, it's it's awfully um, unfortunate for you, but in another way, you've sure learned a lot. It's a huge blessing for me. It's a huge blessing. I have the... I have the ability to relate to people who go through difficult things. Um, because of those contrasts, I can really w- relate to a wide variety of people on both sides of the... Yeah. You know. And I think that's why Jesus can do the same, because uh, they put him through uh, through a pretty dark hell. They did. And he knows how it feels. Um there was a great poet named William Blake who once said, um, without contraries, there is no progression. And, and I think he was inspired to say that. I had a friend, Eugene England was his name, not a relative, but a good friend. And he wrote that, um, quote, this is a quote I picked up from him. Life in this universe is full of polarities. We struggle with them, complain about them, even try sometimes to destroy them with dogmatism or self-righteousness or retreat into ignorance. That was his quote. And this is what I say. Unless we gain knowledge that we can only gain through struggling against opposition, we'll never grow and progress. And there will be no future. And there will be no posterity. There will be no way to access further light and knowledge. And that's the lesson that Adam and Eve learn in the temple. The next lesson we learn is about covenants. Adam and Eve make a series of covenants with the Lord in the temple. And Jacob, the son of Lehi, has clearly made those covenants that Lehi now reminds him of. One covenant is to obey the commandments. Can you read this from chapter 2, verse 28? Hearken unto his great commandments, and be faithful unto his words, and choose eternal life. That's the covenant of obedience, right? Through which we prove ourselves in a state of probation, as Lehi says. We, we promise to obey the law, which is eternal and unchangeable. Lehi says, if ye shall say there is no law, then there's no sin. If there's no sin, there's no righteousness. And if there's no righteousness, there's no happiness. We can't be happy in a universe without laws. In fact, we can't exist in a universe without laws. Nothing can exist in such a universe. So obedience to the law is not negotiable. There's no way around it. Fortunately, if we do fail to obey, we also have the ability to repent, which is made possible by the sacrifice of Christ. And and logically, that is the next covenant of the temple. Lehi teaches Jacob that covenants work both ways. We covenant to obey the law of sacrifice, for example, and the Lord covenants to sacrifice all he has for us. Right. So it's, we're both sacrificing. Right. He sacrifices his very life, his body and blood. And Lehi teaches uh, in chapter 2, verse 7, 8. Go ahead with that. He offereth himself a sacrifice for sin to answer the ends of all the law unto all those who have a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And no flesh can dwell in the presence of God, save it be through the merits and mercies and grace of the Holy Messiah, who layeth down his life according to the flesh, and taketh it again by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Right now, this is, this is the very heart of the covenant of sacrifice. The Messiah sacrifices everything for us. And in turn, he asks us to sacrifice our broken heart and a contrite spirit. This world will break your heart. Right? And he asks us to go through that, and he goes through it with us. And that's how the covenant of sacrifice works in our lives. It enables mercy to answer the requirements of the law. Now the next higher covenant is what I call the covenant of joy. We agree to keep the law of the gospel. Elder McConkie used to call this the celestial law. It is the higher law that Jesus taught um, in the Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus say in John 15, verse 11 and 12? That your joy might be full. This is my commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. Yeah, this is a covenant. What do you think? What, what's the connection between love and joy? <laughs> These are not easy questions this week. <laughs> <laughs> so um, here's how I would respond, and this may not be doctrinally accurate, but in recent years, the way I think about loving people is to look for the good. There's many definitions of love, but one definition I really held on to was this idea of looking for the good. And interestingly enough, when I see the good in people, when I see the potential in people, when I look for their good, it makes me happy. I can be in their presence without being angry or jealous or intimidated. I can have joy. I know that's a real simple thing, but it seems to work for me. I don't, I don't know why. But if I can just see the deity in them, the good in them, that I just feel better. <laughs> it makes me happier. Right. I know it's a strange explanation, but well, there's a lot of a lot of people who talk about the difference between happiness and joy. Um, I'm not sure what the difference is, but for me, joy is living the law of the gospel. Okay, it's the law of love, right? Which is the highest and greatest commandment: love God and love your neighbor. Right. Again, it's reciprocal because the Savior loves us. We should love each other. Correct. And only those of us who love one another can ever experience the fullness of joy, which is what gives our lives meaning. And that's why in verse 25, Lehi says, Men are that they might have joy. That's what gives our lives meaning. I've loved a lot of people. I've loved a lot of family, friends, and... um, when I am with them, uh, I experience joy. That's what joy is for me. When we keep our covenant to live the law of the gospel, we experience joy. It's the only way to experience joy. If we don't keep that covenant, then there's no real joy in our lives. We can party and we can have good times, but the joy of Christ is out of reach. The greatest joy we can experience is to be encircled, right, in the arms of someone who loves us. Right. And think of the greatest joy of all is to be encircled in the arms of Jesus Christ, the arms of his love. Okay, so that's the covenant of um, the gospel. Now, now, Lehi doesn't talk to Jacob about another covenant, the law of chastity, but we know that Jacob emphasizes that law of chastity later in his sermon in the temple, so he's 
perfectly yeah. aware of it, and, yeah. and which we will get to soon. Yeah. But finally, there's the covenant of consecration, which is about um, doing as Jacob does, spending our days in the service of God. I, I believe this covenant covers our whole lives. Of course, we know that service in the church is consecrated. But whenever we serve others, as King Benjamin said, we serve God, right? Uh, working parents, for example, should see their work as not just earning money, it's consecrated service to their families. When you go to work, Sam, you're not just going out there to sell cars or, or make some money, you're, you're serving your family. Correct. You are consecrating your life to their service mm-hmm. and to the service of your customers as well. Volunteer service like you have done in the prisons. Mm-hmm. By the way, Sam has spent a lot of years uh, working with prisoners as a teacher, as a gospel teacher, and in other ways. I say that's very much keeping the law of consecration. Right. Why don't you tell us a little about that? What does it feel like to give consecrated service? Um. I've had an opportunity to hold church callings um, within prison um, congregations, and it has brought me great joy. I have, um, 12 years ago, I started a nonprofit in Atlanta called the Orange Duffel Bag Initiative, and we help young young kids in foster care and kids that are at high risk of living in poverty. And it's some of the greatest uh, joy that I've ever had in my life. It's difficult to even describe, but... But there's something that happens to me when I'm when I'm truly helping people try to unlock their potential and they've had a really hard go of it. It seems to be a gift that I have that I use every day of my life at work, in service in prison communities or at church or in my Orange Duffel Bag Initiative, the nonprofit that we founded. Um, and it just brings me great joy if i can help people get closer to christ and and it doesn't have to be direct like um like i don't have to be teaching them or preaching to them i can teach them principles of life to get them close closer to christ to help unlock their potential and uh, and it just brings me great joy I, I can i have never ending energy around those kinds of things right People have asked me, um, who is Sam and and why is he your co-host? And I'll tell you why. Because Sam is probably the most Christ-like person I know. He has fulfilled Jesus Christ's request to visit the prisoner, to aid the orphan in his affliction, this is what Sam has spent his life doing. And I think that uh, Sam is a remarkable example of, of what Christ wants us, each of us to do. We know that uh, uh, the Lord has asked Jacob in the Book of Mormon to consecrate all his days in the service of God, and I think that's what Sam has done. So that's why you are my friend, and that's why you're my co-host. <laughs> okay. We, we also know that the covenant of consecration goes both ways. We consecrate to him, and he consecrates to us. Uh, could you read this from Second Nephi chapter 1, verses 1 and 2? In thy childhood, 
Thou hast suffered afflictions and much sorrow, but thou knowest the greatness of God, and he shall consecrate thine afflictions for thy gain. So he's going to consecrate our afflictions for our gain. In other words, all the opposition we face, the struggles and conflicts, diseases, hardships, what I call kicks in the head, all that we face in our lives of consecrated service, all that tribulation is consecrated for our gain. And to consecrate something means to make it holy. So all our tribulation is consecrated, it's made holy for our gain. And what do you think that means? So um, after years of therapy, <laughs> you know, through the trauma of my childhood, um, through the skillful hands of therapists and religious leaders and over the years, I've learned to have gratitude for all the trauma and the difficulties of my youth. The gratitude is, is evidence of healing from all that pain and suffering. And the byproduct of that is wisdom. <laughs> That's the gain. Matter of fact, it's a principle of... It's a principle in sports, you, you hear this a lot. You got to go through the pain to get the gain. And why would it be any different in our lives? No. The pain that we have, the struggle that we have, the tribulations that we have is for our benefit and gain. And if you can really get your head around that principle, it changes your life. And to have gratitude for the tribulation, if you can live in that state... That's even, that's even more powerful. You know, today we are fasting in our family and we're going to the temple. And for my brother-in-law, Mike, who has had, he's been two years, it's been two years since he had a terrible accident on his bike and he was hit by a driver on his road bike. And, um, and he is in a bad way. His wife, my sister-in-law, she's in a bad way. And it has been two years of great suffering. And the question is, what good can come from this? What blessing can come from this? And there are blessings that come from it. They're not always obvious. They're not always evident. But, um, you know, there's, there's this principle that I try to teach people who are going through hard things. And that is the harder things get, the better we can get. And the way we do that, the fastest path to getting better through tribulation is through Jesus Christ, is through the atonement is through living a life, following him, being a disciple of Christ, following him, making those difficulties work for your work for your benefit. And this becomes um, a choice that we have to make. You have to make, because bad things happen to everybody, but not everybody chooses to use those bad things as stepping stones, learning opportunities, and growth opportunities. That's where the beginning of free will, in my mind, that's where it begins is in our thinking. I know that's pretty heady answer for it so that's my thoughts I hope that makes sense you make an excellent point you have to choose how to see these things uh, these thorns and thistles that afflict us it, it requires a real change of mentality right to right. see opposition as a blessing but if we think of it as being consecrated that is it makes us holier disease and pain grief and suffering and discouragement and disappointment. People who are mean to us, all the kicks in the head we, we uh, suffer, 
all that stuff is actually consecrated for our gain if we see it that way. And if we ask the Lord to consecrate it, to make it holy, to make us holier because of it, if we look at it that way, opposition makes us humbler, more patient, more long-suffering, meeker, uh, more tender-hearted, and stronger at the same time. It prepares us for exaltation. It prepares us to be like our Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, who suffered more than any human being ever could. It, uh, the Lord wants to see how, how we will handle opposition right. before He can trust us with eternal life and Godhood. And by the way, we have to learn it about ourselves. Right. We have to see how we, we will handle opposition. So in a way, we have something to learn about ourselves while we're here. And if we do handle it well, we're continually encircled in the arms of his love. And that's, that's the secret. That's the culminating moment of the temple. That's the real meaning of the temple, is to be encircled in the arms. Not just at the end of our life, but throughout our lives. Nephi prays for that more than anything else. That, that's in Second Nephi 4, verse 33. Would you read that? O Lord, wilt thou encircle me around in the robe of thy righteousness? And next time we meet, we will talk more about what it means to be encircled in the robe of his righteousness, in the loving arms of the Savior. This was a profound time together this morning. Thanks for your time.